Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Justin Garson, who is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Hunter College, CUNY. His new book, Why Bio- What Biological Functions Are and Why They Matter, is just out from Cambridge University Press. Why do zebras have stripes? One way to answer that question is to ask what function stripes play in the lives of zebras. For example, to deter disease-carrying flies from biting them. This notion of a function plays a central role in biology. Biologists frequently refer to the functions of many traits of evolved organisms. But not everything a trait causes is its function. The stripes, for example, might disorient some harmless birds, but that isn't their function. So what determines the function of a trait? And what sorts of explanations are offered when biologists claim that a trait has a particular function? In his new book, Garson defends what he calls a generalized selected effects theory of what functions are and what they do. He argues that functions can result from differential retention as well as differential replication in a population. And he says that calling a trait a function is to provide a condensed causal explanation. He provides an accessible introduction to debates regarding functions in the philosophy of biology as well as applications of his theory to contemporary debates in philosophy of psychiatry and the philosophy of mind. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Justin Garson. Uh, Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me. I'm looking forward to talking about your new book, What Biological Functions Are and Why They Matter. Um, But before we get into the book itself, um, it's always nice to have a little bit of background about you, right? Can you say about you know, 
who you are and how you got interested in philosophy um, and then how you came to write Sure, this absolutely. Uh, wow, let's see about how I got interested in philosophy. Uh, I, I was at, a, as, as an undergraduate, I was at a, a pretty conventional school for a while in the UNC system. And I enjoyed, I was interested in so many things, in philosophy and psychology and literature and anthropology. And I was terrified by the idea that I was soon going to have to declare a major. It it just seemed like the worst thing that could happen. And so I ended up uh, fleeing across the country. I, I ended up going to a small liberal arts school out in Washington State called the Evergreen State College. It's a really great school. It was a great school for me, a lot of academic freedom. Uh, but one of the one of the best things for me is that you didn't actually have to declare a major. So you could just take what you wanted and then you get out with your BA in liberal arts. So that's what I did. And then I, I finished school and I was out for a couple of years. I think I was waiting tables and I thought, well, this is this is awful. I need to be back in school. I need to figure out what kind of job I can do where I can stay in school forever and I can study pretty much whatever I want. And then it was obvious, well, you got to be a philosophy professor. And so that's how the, the, the um, that's how that worked out. Um, and I, I've just, I'm, I love this job. I, I just feel grateful every day that I get to actually do this uh, uh, for a living. So about uh, biological functions, kind of a weird topic. But when, when I was in graduate school, I was very interested in philosophical aspects of psychiatry and this whole question of what is a mental illness. So uh, suppose that the psychiatrists are arguing with one another about whether or not uh, such and such is a mental illness. Is um, oh I don't know gender identity disorders that a real mental illness or alcoholism or, or Aspergers or uh, I think the newest one is premenstrual uh, dysphoric disorder. They argue with one another, and you think you know it'd be nice if they had some clear rules or some clear guidelines to help them decide what is and what is not a mental illness. And when I talked to uh, I talked to some psychiatrists, I talked to a few philosophers and one very prominent idea out there is that what distinguishes mental disorders from any other kind of maybe socially disvalued uh, condition is that when somebody has a mental disorder, it's because there's some kind of a dysfunction inside of them, some kind of a dysfunction inside of their mind, uh, inside of their brain that causes these uh, thoughts, desires, feelings, the, these uh, behaviors. And I thought, well, that, that sounds like a pretty good starting point. But now that raises an obvious question. What are functions and what are dysfunctions? And in a sense, who gets to decide whose brain is functioning well and who gets to decide whose brain is functioning poorly? And I thought about it like this. I like to think that my brain functions pretty well, uh, but that maybe somebody with, uh, I don't know, delusions and hallucinations associated with schizophrenia, well, his brain is not functioning so well. Could he say with equal justice, no, Justin, you got it all wrong. In fact, it's my brain that's functioning well. My brain is functioning as it ought to. Your brain isn't functioning well. 
would one of us be right? Uh, and s- some philosophers, I don't agree with them on this, but some philosophers thinking about this have gone so far as to think that, you know, all this talk about function and dysfunction and functioning well and functioning poorly, isn't this just a screen for our own value judgments? Uh, so, It finally occurred to me that I wasn't going to make any progress in philosophy of psychiatry or the question of what is a mental disorder until I um, got clear in my own mind about biological functions. Uh, And and once I discovered that there was a number of philosophers who were also fascinated with this whole question of biological function – that just seemed like the natural place to go. That I thought, well, this is the community of people that I really want to uh, engage with. Though I always planned, and I still do plan on eventually coming back around to this topic of uh, mental mental illness. Okay, um, so that's boy. There's a number of questions that <laughs> sure. arise from that answer, um, including the just the basic relationship between the biological function and, of course, the mm-hmm. mental function. Um, but I will set that aside, um, <laughs> okay, good. Uh, you know, because uh, I want to get to what you actually discuss in the talk, taking for granted, you know, sort of what sort of relationship right. there is. Um, so uh, uh, there are two basic approaches more or less, uh, to the nature of, of biological functions, one of which is, is uh, generally a selected effects theory, and another is a causal role mm-hmm. theory. I, I'm probably simplifying a little bit, but those are two, certainly two prominent right. um, ways to think about biological functions. Um, and you give uh, what you call the general, a generalized or the generalized selected effects uh, theory. Um, so maybe you could start us off by explaining what these two uh, main or dominant approaches are, and then um, how your theory differs from uh, uh, sort of the how it how it falls within right. the camp of the selected yeah, effects. Approach. Absolutely. Uh, okay. Wow. Let's see. Well, I, I would even start before getting into the selected effects theory and the causal role theory. Uh, uh, it might be useful just to take a minute to lay out the basic problem context that's motivating these um, these different theories. But I think philosophers. Uh, you know, since the 1950s and 1960s have seen a couple very, what seem to be very basic puzzles about the ordinary biological use of function. And I should just say, when I write about biological functions, I decided, okay, the best thing for me to do is to forget about controversial function assignments, forget about things like psychiatry and mental illness, and just focus in on basic biology. The function of the heart is to beat. What do they mean by that? The function of the, uh, uh, you know, the liver is to detoxify the blood. Or there's one that uh, that's becoming my personal favorite, uh, which is the function of zebra stripes. And when I was writing this book, I wanted to have a nice example of something that wasn't totally obvious and kind, kind of interesting. So I thought, okay, I wonder what biologists think uh, the zebra stripes function is. And what I discovered is that they have no idea, that they've actually been arguing 
about precisely this this issue for uh, centuries. And some biologists think that the function of the zebra stripes is camouflage. Uh, some of them think it has to do with um, thermal regulation, with cooling. Uh, but there's this more recent idea, and I'll, I'll use this as my canonical function statement. There, there's this more recent theory that the function of the zebra stripes is to ward off biting flies. Um, so uh, this is a biologist out in California, Tim Caro, uh, points out that in Central Africa, there is a whole uh, genus of biting flies called tsetse flies. And they carry a, a parasite that's responsible for sleeping sickness, which can be fatal to these animals. And for some weird reason, there's some lab evidence, there's some field evidence that these tsetse flies don't like landing on striped things. You can put a white cloth down, they'll land on it. You could put a black cloth down, they'll land on it. If you put a striped cloth down, they don't land on it as frequently. They don't seem to know what to do with it. I don't know why that is. Maybe they don't recognize it as a. Is that surface. an optical illusion for them? I have no clue. I'm. I'm. I don't. I don't know. I'm fascinated. Who? <laughs> I mean, that's a great question. Okay. Is it that they don't see it as a surface? Is it that there's something about stripes that, that they just have an aversion to? Uh, I don't know why that's true. Uh, mm -hmm. But I, I, there's a lot of uh, interesting evidence for this somewhat newish idea that the function of the zebra stripes is to uh, deter these biting flies. So using that as the canonical example, uh, there are a couple basic puzzles that I think philosophers have really been preoccupied with, with the functions debate. And the first, of course, is that not every effect of a trait is its function. We seem to, of all the different effects that a trait produces, we seem to pick out one or maybe a very few and we like we put those on a pedestal and we say, well, this is the function of the trait. So the heart, the heart pumps blood. It also makes beating sounds that you can listen to through a stethoscope. But of course we say, well, it's the pumping blood. That's the function. It's not making beating sounds. So that's really the first puzzle. Why do we pick out one specific effect? What's the principle that leads us to pick out this one effect rather than some other effect as the traits function? Uh, another puzzle is this issue of dysfunction or malfunction. A trait that has a function can typically malfunction or become uh, dysfunctional. So if I, a morbid example, but if my heart seizes up, if I go into a cardiac arrest, we generally wouldn't say that my heart doesn't have a function anymore. Uh, we would say, no, it, it's a heart. It does have the function of pumping blood. It just can't perform that function. It's dysfunctional or it's malfunctioning. Uh, but here's the third and, and the last big puzzle. And this is the one that I really uh, get hung up on, which is that sometimes, at least when biologists attribute functions to traits, they seem to be trying to explain why the trait uh, exists. So when, when Tim Caro wrote a paper called The Function of Zebra Stripes, it was clear from the context uh, that he was trying to explain why zebras have stripes. How did the zebra come to get its stripes? There's some kind of a causal or historical dimension uh, to function statements. I don't know if 
function statements are always used in this causal explanatory way, but at least sometimes that seems to be the gist of a function statement. When we say that the function of the zebra stripes is to deter biting flies, it seems that we're trying to explain why zebras have stripes. And that's a puzzle that a lot of philosophers have noticed. How is it that the effect of the trait deterring flies explains the existence of that very trait. So all that's just by way of setting up the basic problem context. Uh, now in that context, and I, and I might, uh, I hope I'm going to be fair <laughs> to both sides here, despite the fact that I do have uh, a, a little bit of favoritism. Uh, uh, in the 1980s, you had two different people independently uh, of one another come up with the selected effects theory of function. That was Karen Neander and Ruth Milliken. And both of them uh, said that the function of a trait is whatever it was selected for by natural selection. Some people don't like this phrase, but I'll say it anyway. <laughs> you could say the function of the trait is whatever natural selection designed it for, whatever natural selection put it there for. And I think the real beauty of this, it's, it's a very simple point of view. I mean, there are some bells and whistles, but it's a pretty simple view. And I think the beauty of the view is that it resolves all of these puzzles about function in a very um, simple and, and uh, elegant way. So the first one, not every effect of a trait is its function. Why do we pick out one effect or a handful of effects and call those the traits function. Well, the reason that we say that pumping blood is the function of the heart, not making beating sounds, is that that's what natural selection designed it for. That's why natural selection uh, favored hearts. Uh, similarly, if we want to explain uh, malfunctioning or dysfunction, uh, at least conceptually, it's very easy to understand that's because whether or not a trait take a heart, whether or not a trait has a function depends entirely on its history. It depends entirely on how evolution uh, unfolded. Whether or not the trait can perform the function here and now, of course, depends on its inner uh, mechanism, on its uh, environment. So at least conceptually, it's easy to understand how a trait can have a function due to its history that it's unable to perform. And uh, one consequence of that is that I think statements about dysfunction are actually very objective uh, scientific statements. They're as objective as stating that something is an adaptation. Uh, and then finally, this to me was really the, the um, this to, to me was really the, the thing that convinced me, the thing that really made me a convert uh, to the selected effects theory is that, it explains how it is that when we attribute a function to a trait, we are at the same time offering a causal explanation for why that trait uh, exists. So he, he, we can think of it like this. Uh, when Tim Caro says that the function of the zebra stripes is to deter biting flies, according to the selected effects theory, what he's committed to is something like this, that at some point, time in the past, there was a population of ancestors to modern zebras, and some of them had stripes, 
and some of them uh, didn't have stripes. And the ones with the stripes, you know how this goes, uh, were able to deter biting flies better than the ones without the stripes. And so the ones with the stripes persisted, stuck around uh, in the population. And that's why zebras have stripes today. So quite Literally, uh, when I attribute a function to a trait, I'm, I'm offering an explanation, whether it be true or false, for why that trait exists. And it seems to me, and this is perhaps where my favoritism comes in, that no other theory of function really captures this kind of explanatory dimension of uh, function statement. So that's why I'm really sold on it. Uh, but let me just say something about about the the causal role view that you mentioned just to contrast it with the selected effects theory so this is mainly due to uh, robert cummins in 1975 he wrote a paper called functional analysis and he says near the beginning of the paper he admits that some biologists when they attribute functions to traits, they seem to think that they are trying to explain the existence of that very trait. But he says that doesn't make any sense. There's no coherent theory of functions that would allow function statements to work in this way uh, uh, as causal explanations. So he urged that we take a very different approach. And so for Cummins and for this causal role theory, uh, the function of a trait just consist in the contribution that it makes to some higher level system capacity that we happen to be interested in. So it's it's very much relative to our own interests, to our own perspective. So in his opinion, the reason we can justifiably say uh, the function of the heart is to circulate blood is because or the function of the heart is to beat. Uh, And that's because the beating contributes to some higher level system capacity, namely the circulating blood. And that's what we're interested in. Uh, We're not, in his view, trying to explain the existence of the heart. We're not trying to explain uh, why it's there. And Mm-hmm. One problem with his his view, and again, I'm I'm not going to harp on what's wrong with his view, but I'll, I'll just one one famous issue with his view is that in some ways it seems to be overly liberal in the way that it gives out functions. So uh, suppose I happen to be interested in the way that the body makes different kinds of sounds, then given my interests and given my perspectives, uh, it would make perfect sense. I would be justified in saying that the function of the heart is to make a certain uh, thumping sound because that's how the heart contributes to the sounds that the body makes in general. So a lot of people have, have pointed out uh, that it, it makes functions very uh, perspectival. Some people think that's problematic, but Cummins and his followers don't think that's uh, problematic. It's just a mm-hmm. consequence of his view. Right. Um, so, uh, well, okay. So you're, you're, you are going to give, or you're, uh, you do give a, a, what you call the generalized selected effects. So how does, how does your, uh, your version of it go? Good. Uh, yeah, thanks. That was the second part of your question. Uh, so here's a problem with the, the selected effects theory. If Cummins causal role theory seems to, 
general, too liberal. Uh, people have argued that the selected effects theory is too narrow. It excludes too many things from having functions that intuitively, and even according to biological usage, do have functions. So it makes sense of functions when we're thinking about evolutionary timescales, the function of the heart, the function of the zebra stripes. But of course, psychologists uh, often make function uh, statements that seem to have nothing to do with natural selection. So you might say something like, uh, I don't know, the function of the rats pressing the lever the function of the rat's lever-pressing behavior is to get some food. That seems like a perfectly sensible, legitimate function statement, but it's not. It's, there's not like a mechanism in the rat's brain that was designed by natural selection to push a lever when it's hungry. Similarly, in, in neuroscience, as I'm sure you're, you're very... Uh, aware, it seems that neuroscientists are perfectly comfortable attributing functions uh, to parts of the brain that most likely did not evolve by natural selection. So when, when I've read about uh, reading ability, uh, some people say, well, th there's this area in our brain, what is it, the, the fusiform gyrus and that one of its yeah. one of its functions is to help us uh, say a native English speaker help us determine what sequence of letters constitutes a potentially genuine word in which sequences of letters are nonsensical. And it seems to me that neuroscientists generally w would be comfortable attributing functions to parts of the brain in terms of how they contribute to reading ability. But if reading ability wasn't shaped by natural selection, uh, then it seems that the selected effects theory couldn't say anything uh, about that. So that that's one issue. So a handful of people, and I'm kind of in this minority tradition, uh, Ruth Milliken pointed this out, um, Paul Griffiths, David Papineau, a few people said, maybe we can extend this, the basic idea of the selected effects theory to cover other kinds of processes other than evolutionary natural selection. And one of the examples uh, that was sometimes used is something like trial and error behavior or operant conditioning. You say have a, you have a hungry rat and there's a cage and there's a lever and it gets hungry and maybe it tries doing things somewhat randomly. It maybe scratches at the door or tries to climb out of the cage. Nothing works. It presses the lever. It gets food. And so that behavior is reinforced and it keeps doing that. And one of the things that Milliken uh, and, uh, you know, David Papineau suggested is that we should think of this as a kind of selection process that gives rise to new functions. It's, it doesn't give rise to new functions, of course, in an evolutionary scale, but on the scale of uh, development, because they thought it's similar enough to natural selection. You have a group of uh, behavior dispositions. Uh, some of those are reinforced over others because of their effects and therefore they come to have functions. And that seems like fundamentally the right way to go uh, to me is to expand the notion of selection to capture other kinds of um, functions, the kinds of functions that we have sometimes in psychology or in uh, neuroscience. But it seemed to me that First of all, these philosophers never developed the suggestion in a very systematic way. And secondly, it seemed to me that that suggestion actually contradicted the basic premises 
of their theories of function. So Ruth Millikan is a good example, but pretty much everybody else did the same thing, and sometimes very explicitly and very heartily. They would restrict functions to entities that undergo something like reproduction or copying. And of course, the paradigm is an organism that uh, reproduces itself. So they thought that, okay, in order for behaviors generated by trial and error to have new functions, we have to find something akin to reproduction or copying. I know we'll say that a certain behavior, say my pressing the lever, is the thing that's getting reproduced. So maybe my pressing the lever on a Tuesday uh, Say I press a lever on a Tuesday and it works out for me. I get some food. So I press the lever on a Wednesday. It works out. I get some food. I press the lever on a Thursday. Maybe we should say that each instance of the lever pressing is kind of like a reproduction or a copy of the instance of lever pressing that uh, proceeded. That was the basic pattern that they tried to use. Now, it seems to me that that's at at least, maybe it's not wrong, but it seems at least a stretch to think of behavior tokens as forming something like parent-offspring relations or being copies uh, of one another. It seems to me uh, that the notion of reproduction is out of place. At least, a more natural way of describing what's going on is to say that you have these different behavioral dispositions. Uh, Some of them, like the lever pressing uh, disposition, are getting strengthened. And some of them, like the disposition to scratch at the door, are getting weakened. You don't have to try to Uh, fit what's going on into this pattern of reproduction or copying. It seems more natural to say that certain things, namely these behavior patterns, are simply persisting better, longer, more efficiently uh, than than others. And so that that was the basic idea. Let me just say, oh yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Um, Yeah, well, finish up and then I'll... One other thing, even if I I realize some people... um, don't find the thing about trial and error behavior that that they say. Well, why not describe that as a form of reproduction or copying? Right. I mean, that was essentially. I was going to say, you know, I mean, what, you seem to have restricted reproduction to parent mm-hmm. offspring, and the obvious move is to say, well. What justifies that restriction? I mean, the idea is that something gets replicated in some sense. Uh, the behavior, you know, it's just one, and then it becomes, you know, a type of behavior, mm-hmm. um, or the first one was an instance of the type, however you want to mm-hmm. say it. Um, but uh, there doesn't. So the the response is just, you know, what what justifies restricting the term reproduction or replication to just parent offspring when there are perfectly respectable it seems relationships that apply to both you know behavior yeah. tokens as well as other sorts of traits um, because you know biologists do call behavior traits um, uh, 
yeah, I mean, aren't, aren't you aren't you right. the one who's being a little bit too, you know, defining things the way you want? Right. I, yeah, I understand that. And so let me let me give a different kind of example than the trial and error. The trial and error one was just to start warming <laughs> warming up your intuitions, yeah. but it was not meant to be the knockdown uh, the knockdown kind of uh, argument. And the fact that uh-huh. one way of talking seems more natural to me, so who cares what seems more natural to you? Uh, but <laughs> but he, here's another example that I think is even better uh, and that occurred to me was the example of neural selection. Uh, neural selection uh-huh. uh, takes place when I don't know how common it is or how rare it is. There's still some disagreement uh, in my understanding about how common or rare neural selection is. But neural selection takes place when there's uh, some kind of a competitive relationship between neural elements, whether they be synapses or whole neurons or uh, even potentially whole groups of neurons. So just use the simplest uh, possible case of synapse selection. Suppose you have two neurons and both of them synapse onto the same target neuron. And suppose one of those synapses uh, has some useful downstream uh, effects, synapse A and synapse B. Synapse A is good. It has some useful downstream effect. Synapse B does not have a useful downstream effect. One possibility is that synapse A is going to be retained and synapse B is going to be eliminated. This kind of thing happens in the uh, 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 neuromuscular junction. It's part of my understanding. It's part of the formation of these uh, abnormal ocular dominance columns. But the point is that it seems to me that that should be sufficient for giving rise to a new function. If one synapse is retained because of some useful effect and another synapse is eliminated, uh, it seems to me that that should be um, that should be enough. And it doesn't just seem to me that that should be enough. It seems to me that you could argue on the basis of the uh, on the basis of, uh, I guess, first principles, if you will, that anybody who accepts the selected effects theory of function, which restricts functions to uh, entities that undergo something like reproduction or differential reproduction, should also, for the same reasons, accept this more general point of view where I can give functions to things not merely because they undergo something like differential reproduction, but also because they undergo something like differential persistence. And I think that when you broaden functions to include uh, differential persistence, you suddenly have a much more natural way of explaining functions not only in this evolutionary um, framework, but at least some functions in psychology and some functions in neuroscience. And uh, I think that's a real game changer in some ways. I think it really changes the conversation. And I think it has a lot of interesting implications for other uh, debates and disputes. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off okay so um so just to just to be clear i mean where say milliken or and papano griffiths might might say that the that the behavior you know reproduces or replicates uh you you would just say well no um it 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 um uh, it different. There's differential persistence. Yeah, I would say. Is that is that is that that's correct? That's right. So that, let me that... see. My theory. I have my book here, so look, I have to remember exactly yeah. what I said. Uh, so the generalized selected effects theory says that a function of a trait is an activity that contributed in the past either to that trait's differential reproduction, as in evolutionary natural selection or to that trait's right. differential retention, as in synapse uh-huh. selection, maybe uh, trial and error learning, in a population. So it's a, a disjunctive approach to function where it just I accept all of the functions that the traditional selected effects theorist accepts, the theorist that restricts functions to things that undergo differential reproduction. But I include that to uh, encompass many other sorts of functions, the ones that just involve something like differential uh, persistence. There still has to be some kind of a competitive okay. element, but it can take place between things that don't, strictly speaking, reproduce. Right, and and so for you, the reproduction part is is a is, is a historical evolutionary historical property. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I, and I think okay. that the reason, I mean, it's it's complicated because there are a few reasons that some people have actually been. It wasn't just a slip or an accident uh, that they restricted functions to things that undergo differential reproduction rather than just persistence. Huh. Some people have argued this very explicitly that functions require reproduction. Ruth Milliken in her uh, 1993 book, The White Queen Psychology, there's a point where she says, if you don't restrict functions to things that undergo some kind of reproduction or copying, you're going to have a view that's so liberal, it's going to be totally out of touch with the way that biologists actually speak. And uh, Peter Godfrey Smith makes a similar remark in a 1993 paper. He says very explicitly, we've got to restrict functions to things that undergo something like reproduction or copying, or else we won't be able mm-hmm. to uh, stave off all kinds of um, absurd right. uh, absurd counterexamples. So a big part of my uh, – a big part of the book is explaining how you can make this move. You can broaden functions to include all of these other kinds of domains like neuroscience and psychology, and you don't succumb to all kinds of uh, absurd or trivializing uh, counterexamples. Okay, good. So so um, you also uh, – so the selection here is at the population mm-hmm. level, right? I mean you, you – that's the, – there's sort of three elements – to your generalization, uh, the reproduct differential reproduction uh-huh. differential retention mm-hmm. or persistence mm-hmm. in some way, um, and then population. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so uh, could you could you explain that aspect? Because and, and in particular because um, you you say that you know to ascribe a function to some trait is to give a condensed causal explanation and you know and and selection over natural in you know natural selection anyway over evolutionary time scales mm-hmm. um is you know is defined over over populations not mm-hmm. individuals and so you know there seems to be there there need there needs to be some sort of clarification as to the sense in which uh, naturally, natural selection, uh, you know, functions defined at the population level mm-hmm. are, are causal mm-hmm. explanations as opposed to just in some way causally relevant. I mean, I take it this is one of Cummins, you know, the causal mm-hmm. role points is, you know, you want um, you on their view, you want to say what is being contributed by a particular mm-hmm. trait to the current operations of the organism. Yeah. And that's a very clear right. sort of causal relationship there. But once you start talking about populations, it's, it's more difficult, yeah. right. To see how function talk at this in terms of select effects uh, are going to provide what you call condensed causal explanations. Yeah. Oh. So could you say something about the, the population level, uh, you know, feature of the of your theory, and then how they these descriptions provide causal. Yeah, absolutely, and that's that's a great question. So there are really uh, two parts. I take it, and one part is easy, and one part is hard. One part I think I can give a pretty good answer, and the other part I probably will not give a very good answer, maybe not a very satisfying answer. Um, but let me say why I restrict why I add that in my definition of function. A function of a trait is an activity that contributed to that trait's differential reproduction as an evolutionary natural selection or differential reproduction as in, say, neural selection in a population. Uh, That was very important uh, because uh, several people brought to my attention that expanding functions in the way that I do to include not only differential reproduction, but also differential persistence could have all kinds of terrible uh, consequences. It would be overly liberal in precisely the way that I accuse uh, people like Cummins of being overly liberal. And here is one example. Uh, uh, Justine Kingsbury in, in a wrote a paper where she mentions this just as an as an aside, but I thought it was a good point. She said, suppose you expand functions to include, uh, you don't uh, restrict functions to reproduction, but you expand functions to include something like uh, persistence. Okay, now imagine you have just a bunch of rocks scattered on a beach, uh, and some of those rocks are going to be harder than others, and the harder ones will presumably withstand erosion better than the softer ones. And so over time, you're just going to – the harder ones are going to remain. It seems like that would be a case of differential persistence. But it seems absurd to say that the function of – hardness is a function of 
rocks. And so that's why uh, she says, look, you've got, and this was the theme Milliken and Godfrey Smith made comments in the similar kind of direction. That's why you have to restrict functions to things that undergo reproduction or else you're going to get these bizarre uh, counterexamples. And it seemed to me that another way, uh, and I agree that that's a serious counterexample, and I agree that it's good for a theory of biological function to hang together pretty well with the way that biologists use the term function, and so I agree that that would be a problem. But it seems to me that another way you could avoid the example is by restricting functions uh, to members of a population. And of course, and I want to say, well, a bunch of rocks on the beach, that's not a population. That's just an aggregate or a uh, collection. Uh, so, of course, the next question would be, well, what exactly is a population? Uh, and it's a good question. And, you know, unfortunately, it's not a question that philosophers of biology have spent a lot of time thinking about up until recently. So in 2009, you had um, uh, some work by Roberta Milstein and Peter Godfrey Smith really pointing to the importance and the centrality of this notion of a biological uh, population. But one of the themes that runs throughout this uh, somewhat sparse literature is that in order for a bunch of individuals to constitute a population, they have to interact with one another in the right way. There has to be something like fitness-relevant interactions between them. My behavior has to have some impact on your fitness. Your behavior has to have some impact on my fitness, or my behavior has to have some impact on some third party whose behavior has some impact on your fitness, that kind of thing. And so it seemed to me that this was a really good way of uh, avoiding those kinds of trivializing counterexamples. Even with this very minimal conception of what a population is, I think we can say that a bunch of rocks on the beach, that's not a population because there's nothing analogous uh, to fitness-relevant interactions. It's not as if the rate at which one rock erodes um, has some impact on the rate at which other rocks erode. So I think that if you demand that there be some kind of a interaction between these entities, some kind of a fitness-relevant or persistent-relevant interaction, uh, you can avoid a lot of those um, trivializing counterexamples. People have come up with other counterexamples uh, that are somewhat more sophisticated, but I think that if we really dig into this notion of a population and explicate it sufficiently, we can, we can avoid um, the worst of them. So that's, that's why I say that. Now, let's see your other part. And this is, this, this is the part that, uh, I don't, I don't think I'll have anything, uh, really satisfying to say. Let's see. So the question is what makes natural selection a cause? Is that right? So it's, it's easy to think that maybe, yeah. you know, um, I push, uh, I don't know. I push a rock. <laughs> it rolls down the hill. I'm the cause of the rock. And philosophers have disagreed with one another about whether natural selection operating at the population level can be a cause. I mean, it's easy to think that, okay, an, an animal dying, uh, an animal surviving, two animals fighting over food, those kinds of things are singular events. They can have causal impacts, uh, but natural selection, uh, I take it that this is 
where you're coming from that some people have said that it's it's just not the right kind of thing to be a cause or it's not a cause in some proper sense uh, of the term right it's it's they're they're statistical you know sort of they're they're you know it's like the statistics you know the population uh, the population the the percentage of say zebras that have stripes mm-hmm. increases you know as a percentage of the population over the zebras that don't have stripes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that because of the 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 yeah, yeah. They, they because they can because the ones with stripes survive to reproduce more than the ones with uh, that don't have stripes or have worse mm-hmm. stripes or mm-hmm. something. Um, but that's just a you know basically a statistical you know measure over percentages of a population, mm-hmm. and and so. If function talk is, um, you know, is is defined at, in terms of an explanation, a, you know, historical explanation for why you have a particular trait, um, that it's a perfectly fine historical explanation. But the question is just you call them condensed is causal that a causal explanation. explanation. So that, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. I understand. Uh, and this is where, I, I mean, I'm going to admit my knowledge of the causation literature uh, <laughs> kind of starts to tap out here when we get to these kinds okay. of questions. But it's just two things I'll say. And again, I don't, I don't, there's a, a particularly, not particularly sophisticated things to say. Uh, one point I, w- I would make is that, I mean, if the issue is a micro and macro kind of issue, so we can describe when we say that, uh, uh, natural selection explains why zebras have, why most zebras today have stripes. Um, the fact that we can tell that story at a kind of micro level, individual level perspective doesn't rule out our ability to tell a causal story at the macro perspective. So, uh, you know, I'm thinking of two billiard balls. One billiard ball strikes another billiard ball. We typically think of that as a perfectly good causal explanation. Of course, we could restate the explanation at a kind of micro molecular level, but the fact that we can tell this causal story at the micro molecular level doesn't rule out that there's a legitimate causal story to be told at this more macro level too. So I I wonder if that's not part of what's going on, that because we can see a a nice cause and effect story at the level of individuals and singular events, maybe we think that that somehow excludes our being able to give a cause and effect story uh, kind of at the macro level. I don't know. That's just the one thing I would say. Here's the other thing that I would say. My understanding of the uh, causation literature is that there's two main perspectives. There's two main theories on what causes are. And one theory uh, uh, emphasizes this idea that causes should mainly be thought of at this uh, individual level as a relationship between singular 
event. So I throw a, a rock, mm-hmm. it smashes a window. Uh, somehow, causation seems to consist in the fact that there's been some kind of a transfer of energy from the rock to the window. And I absolutely agree. If that's what causation is, uh, then it doesn't seem like natural selection is a proper cause. It's more like, as you said, a statistical summary of a bunch of lower level events. Uh, The other notion of cause, however, in my understanding, is a little bit more perhaps inclusive in what it would consider uh, a cause. It's this difference-making account. So something like this, uh, Mm -hmm. I strike a match, it causes a fire. Uh, What we mean by that, that the striking the match causes the flame, is that if I hadn't struck the match, and other other things being equal, had I not struck the match, there wouldn't be a flame. And we can think about this getting into possible worlds, I think the idea would be something like this. On the nearest possible world where I did not strike that match, uh, there would not be a flame. And my sense, or this is what I suspect, that perhaps this difference-making approach to cause might be more inclusive in terms mm-hmm. of what we consider to be a proper cause and effect story. So uh, natural selection would be a cause in this particular way. Uh, on a nearby possible world where stripes do not deter tsetse flies, zebras would not have stripes. Uh, I think that the difference-making perspective would consider that, um, if that's true, then they would consider it valid to say that, um, uh, you know, the fact that stripes deter tsetse flies is a causal explanation for why most zebras have stripes but that's all i have to say on on that but i I don't know you know we're getting beyond my my pay scale as they say once we get into deeper metaphysics but okay well that's fine i had Um, this other thing i'll just say this i had uh one some of the Uh reviewers when i when i uh for my book I first said that uh, a function functions are typically restricted to parts of organisms rather than whole organisms. Uh, so we say that the zebra stripes mm-hmm. have a function, but we don't say zebras uh, have a function. And right. immediately they had a very good question. What do you mean by a part? And what exactly is the relationship between a part and a whole? And I thought, oh, no, I, I've gotten into deep trouble now uh, by bringing in this stuff about parts and wholes. Um so I, I managed to say something different that didn't raise the same flags. But uh, yeah, it's it's kind of a an awkward uh, situation when you're trying to skirt some of these bigger metaphysical issues about the nature of parts and wholes or the nature of, of causation. Right, right. Well, these are difficult, mm-hmm. difficult problems for everybody, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me, uh, let me get to some of the, the applications, yeah. right? And, and in particular, I mean, you started uh, your, your own personal sort of motivation came from, you know, philosophy of psychiatry and definitions of mental disorder, dysfunction. Um, and one of the, in one of the chapters, you know, towards the end, when you talk about, you know, applications of your theory, um, one of those primary applications, of course, is to the philosophy of psychiatry and determining what are 
mental disorders mm-hmm. or dysfunctions mm-hmm. and what are not. Um, uh, and as you also mentioned, um, you know, there's a whole there's a whole stream of, of thought here. You know, at least one one important part of this debate is the idea that what we uh, what what people will call a function or a dysfunction is a highly uh, uh, relative, you know, interest relative, cultural mm-hmm. relative, you know, society relative uh, matter. And, and a frequent case here used is is the fact that I forget which DSM uh, four, three, whatever. Um, classified homosexuality as, uh-huh. a, as some sort of a disorder, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of the, the classic right. case in this. Um, uh, but much more in nowadays, right? You've got the deaf community saying, you know, we're, we're just, we're, we're our own community and there's nothing, uh, you know, we're not, we're not, we don't have a dysfunction mm-hmm. or anything. We're just, you know, different. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I mean, that's simplifying, right. but that's right. the basic idea. So um, can you say a bit about your approach, you know, given your, your initial motivations, can you say a bit about your approach to uh, the classification of mental uh, disorders or dysfunctions and, you know, specifically how your theory um, helps uh, or how it, at least it, it provide some sort of an answer to these debates. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that, those are both really good, uh, really good questions. I mean, one is that this one thing you raise closer to the end is that this notion of dysfunction uh, can be can have a really strong negative um, negative association or connotation. We think saying something is a dysfunction sounds like, uh, you know, if we say being uh, deaf or hard of hearing stems from a dysfunction, uh, it sounds like we're potentially saying, you know, people who are deaf are somehow defective uh, or that they're broken uh, or that they're deficient. There's something wrong with them when we ought to change them, uh, which is a pretty awful, uh, pretty awful thing to say. Um so the first thing that I would say about that is that my view of function and dysfunction, it is meant to be a naturalistic uh, kind of approach. Uh, I do think that there is some, I don't know what the facts are, but I do think that there is a fact of the matter, uh, as they say, about whether uh, deafness or being hard of hearing, say, does stem from a dysfunction or doesn't stem from a, a dysfunction. But in my view, I try to separate as much as possible this question of whether something is functional and dysfunction or dysfunctional on the one hand from whether it is good, desirable, uh, something that we should strive towards on the other. So for me, uh, uh, if it's true that, say, being deaf or hard of hearing stems from a dysfunction, uh, that wouldn't imply anything, socially speaking. That wouldn't imply that it's uh, uh, somehow undesirable to have or it's something that we ought to intervene on or it's something that we ought to change. And it seems to me that some of the objections that people have raised uh, regarding my notion of uh, function and dysfunction stem from the fact that in their mind, saying that something is dysfunctional is just so closely connected to saying that it's undesirable, it's bad, it's something that society should uh, uh, stamp out or eliminate. And I certainly 
don't want to embrace any of those kinds of explicitly normative or political uh, uh, agendas. I, uh, and then the second thing is is this about, um, and it drives me crazy when when people uh, throw around the dysfunction label in a very I don't know, kind of lazy way. So maybe you turn on Dr. Phil, not that you would watch Dr. Phil, but you turn something on like Dr. Phil and maybe they're talking about somebody who's an exhibitionist and they have a psychiatrist on and the psychiatrist says, well, everybody knows that the exhibitionist that comes from a brain dysfunction. I hate that stuff. I hate when the notion of function and dysfunction is thrown around in this very loose, casual uh, uh, way. But here's, here's where I think the biggest payoff for my view is when it comes to thinking about mental illness and mental disorder. The view that I'm really opposed to is this idea that in order for something to be a mental disorder, there has to be some kind of underlying dysfunction. And I, I, the philosopher that I really have used uh, many times as a foil uh, for my uh, for for my writing is Jerome Wakefield. Uh, Wakefield has uh, he calls it the harmful dysfunction analysis of disorder, and in his point of view, in order for something to be a legitimate mental disorder, it has to stem from some kind of a dysfunction. Now he and I are in agreement about one thing, namely that functions are selected effects. He accepts the selected effects theory of function as I do. So he, but he restricts functions to selection in this evolu- in the sense of evolutionary natural selection. So in his view, quite literally, in order for something to be a mental disorder, uh, it has to. There has to be some kind of a mechanism inside the person that fails to perform its evolved functions. Mental disorder are effectively, mental disorders are evolved dysfunctions. And that just seems like far too narrow a way of thinking about mental illness. One of the uh, criticisms that people have often raised against Wakefield is what uh, sometimes called the mismatch objection. I didn't come up with this. I wish I had because I think it's so clever. Uh, And the question is, why are you so confident that mental disorders always or generally stem from dysfunctions? Isn't it possible, evolutionarily speaking, that at least some mental disorders are adaptations? They perhaps benefited some of our ancestors long ago, perhaps in the Pleistocene uh, era, and they exist now precisely because they had that benefit. So, I mean, we're getting pretty speculative here, but take uh, something like generalized anxiety disorder. Isn't it at least logically <laughs> conceivable uh, that those among our Pleistocene ancestors who were susceptible to what we would now call generalized anxiety disorder were more vigilant to potential threats in their environment and perhaps survived a little bit better than those who were not? susceptible uh, to anxiety disorders. There's plenty of uh, psychologists who have speculated about the evolution of 
depression. Uh, isn't it possible that depression might have served some kind of a purpose or, or a function amongst our ancestors, and that's why it exists today? Perhaps depression has the function of helping us to um, let go of unrealistic life life goals or things like that. So it seems to me that Wakefield is mistaken by uh, insisting that mental disorders have to stem from biological dysfunctions. Now, here's how my view contributes to that kind of uh, debate, because on my view, on this generalized selected effects uh, theory, it seems even more likely that what we think of as a mental disorder might actually be an adaptation. It might actually serve some function. And that's because I, I recognize many more uh, function bestowing. In my view, there are many more ways that something can acquire a function than on the traditional selected effects theory. So I'll just give a simple example to, to convey the point, probably overly simplistic. Uh, but suppose you have like a young boy who grows up in a very abusive uh, household and suppose he acquires certain psychological behavioral uh, dispositions that are consistent with that. He becomes uh, hostile, he becomes um, 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 susceptible to uh, violent outbursts. Maybe he uses a broken bottle in a fight. He has the kinds of symptoms that psychiatrists would classify uh, as conduct disorder, but it seems to me that it's at least possible for some people and in some situations uh, that those dispositions, that those psychological, those behavioral dispositions actually developed because they served, because they had a purpose, because they served some kinds of uh, uh, function, because there are ways for the kid to say, you know, keep your distance from me, you know, Stay within ten feet of me. Don't don't come near me uh, again. And if that's right, then according to my view, this generalized selective effects theory, then those kinds of dispositions would would have a function. They wouldn't be dysfunctional uh, at all. So I, I I think my view advances that conversation by suggesting, look, th this idea that there are mental disorders uh, that are functional and, and adaptive or, or that have a function. Uh, this is an idea that we need to take very, very seriously. We shouldn't, um, we shouldn't just assume as a matter of course that uh, mental disorders generally involve dysfunctions. Okay, very good. Um, so we are actually out of time. Wow. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, so it's, it's been a great conversation. Um, and there's plenty more to talk about, but unfortunately, uh, we won't get to, but I would encourage listeners to, you know, actually pick up the book. Um, so just to close for, you know, very briefly, um, uh, what's on the horizon for you? Are you doing follow-up work or, wow. you know, again, this is just a, just a quick I get it. I'll try to stay within two minutes, but I'll, 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 I will, I promise. Uh, I'm, I'm on sabbatical now. I'm very fortunate. So I'll, I'll, I'm on sabbatical until next September. And I'm actually working on that follow-up book about mental illness and, and philosophy of psychiatry. And what I'm doing is actually exploring historically 
the historical manifestations in psychiatry of this idea that some mental disorders may have some kind of a purpose or some kind of a function or maybe adaptations. It seems to me that this is actually an idea that is expressed in different ways throughout the history of psychiatry. I mean, going back hundreds of years to people like Richard Burton in his Anatomy of Melancholy, he thought mental disorders generally were uh, punishments from God. There are ways that God both punishes us, but also offers us redemption. And, and it's a silly idea. It's not an idea that I take seriously. What I find fascinating, though, is that for hundreds of years, psychiatrists have been at least aware of and sensitive to this idea that a lot of the things that we think of as as uh, mental illnesses might have some kind of a purpose or, or a function or a, um, adaptive value that we've we've overlooked so it's it's a historical book that tries to um, explicate to, to trace out that way of thinking through, through psychiatry's history and I hope that my goal in doing that is that when you see when you see kind of historically how many people have adopted this view that mental disorders have some kind of a functional or adaptive or purposeful significance then that will really start to change our, our perspective and it'll make us less likely to just assume as a matter of course that mental disorders must involve some kind of a dysfunction. Okay, very good. Well, I, I wish you luck with that and and, Thank you. and have a great sabbatical. Thank you so much. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, yeah. So um, anyway, so we should go. But uh, thank you again for taking the time to talk uh, on New Books and Philosophy. All right. Thank you, Carrie. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to my interview with Justin Garson, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Hunter College. City University of New York. His new book, What Biological Functions Are and Why They Matter, is just out from Cambridge University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and thank you for listening. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.